welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I'm back, and today I have the most wonderful, light-filled soul with me, Sarah Bright. Sarah has been a certified personal trainer, nutritionist, and group fitness instructor for nearly two decades. But let me tell you, even though she's all these things, we're not going to have a conversation about how to lift weights better and how to lose weight and do all the things. Sarah has helped thousands of people on multiple continents to reach their health and wellness goals. While she still does that work, Sarah is now also the host of the podcast, Your Chakra Coach, which is how Sarah and I met, a show that blends ancient information about our energy system with practical modern physiology and psychology. While it started as a show primarily about physical health, The 2020 pandemic created a huge space to discuss mental and emotional health. The show has grown into an exploration of how the chakra system can be used to improve physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual self to bring us closer to our highest good. Welcome, Sarah. I am so glad you're here. Thank you, Jen. I am so very happy to be here. And thanks for that lovely intro. You are so welcome. Well, you helped me because you wrote some of it, but then I (laughs) ad-libbed. So you and I were talking uh, before we jumped onto the recording about just kind of like qualifying as an empath. And we were talking about how you didn't necessarily identify with that word, but also just growing up in a world where there was a lot of like, it it was confusing. Uh, You were being told there's no such thing as this thing. That's not real. So let's start at the very beginning. Talk to me about your childhood, your experiences, how you realized you were a sensitive person. Sure. So since I was a kid, my parents always said, oh gosh, Sarah's very serious. She's such a serious child. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'm very observational. I spend a lot of time watching and learning. And part of that was especially as I got into, you know, young childhood, elementary school, was really feeling a big disconnect from what I was feeling on the inside and what I was seeing in my world. And just to kind of explore that a little, people were behaving and saying one thing when my sense of what was actually happening was completely opposite. And so I was very confused. I had no framework, no concept of how to contextualize that. I didn't understand faking as we, you know, as we talked about earlier, the idea that you might be so clearly feeling one thing and saying something completely different. And it, and I think that's very common. And we do that for our, our, you know, safety, emotional safety. Not everybody is a safe place to share your right. deepest thoughts and feelings, of course, but it was coming at me from what I felt like was every direction. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. part of that was being raised in this very dogmatic, fundamentalist, evangelical religion, right? And part of it was just so narrowly focused that to think outside of the box 
was really frowned upon. Questions, very, very much frowned upon. Uh, getting new information, don't do that. Just go with the information that you're given. But my sense when I would interact with these people was that what they were feeling didn't match what they were telling me. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. really struggled because I would, you know, and even people that I would see just not on Sundays and Wednesdays or whatever, I would see their, I, I guess, almost their behaviors outside of the realm of the church. And then it wouldn't match anything that what I sensed coming from them or anything that they were saying. Uh, and I don't understand why I couldn't understand why other people weren't picking up on that. It's like, right. how does everybody not understand that we are wandering through a fake field? Right. <laughs> like right. none right. of this, I don't understand why there's seems to be so many different levels of what's happening. And we're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. And so if I would try to talk about it, it would be pushed down. Like that's not a real thing. And nobody said the word empath to me, of course, Jen, right? That's not, that wasn't a term that came up, but I- Well, and especially in like, and especially in like fundamentalist Christian environment, like if you're being raised by evangelicals, like, I mean, I don't even know if you were allowed to watch Star Trek, like- you know, you know, it's like there's definitely a curation of the information that's available to you. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Funny little story about Star Trek. So when I was about seven or eight years old, my dad decided that we would not watch any television in our home. at all. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. we had a television, but we were not allowed to watch it at all, with a few exceptions, which will not surprise you to learn they were the things he wanted to watch. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm shocked. Shocked, Sarah. What? What? Right, I know. And those things included football, American football, uh, some news, but I don't remember ever watching that, and Star Trek The Next Generation, uh-huh, which uh-huh. I don't know why that, but it was the only TV, TV that came on in my home, so I would watch it. That's what we watched. I have been known to describe myself, like my personal belief system, as Picardian after the captain of the Star Trek Enterprise on Next Generation. And I know that you told me before that the term empath came from an episode of Star Trek. And I thought, oh, my well, God, actually, that's just or actually, a short story or something. It, got, it started with a short story in the 1950s that was written by somebody whose name I need to write it as a sticky note. And have it on my desk. So I keep remembering his name because I always forget this guy's name. Um, but yeah, the first real pop culture reference to to Empath was the original Star Trek, you know, the the OG Star Trek with Kirk, Spock and McCoy. Yeah. And the episode was literally called The Empath. And I mean, obviously, within within Star Trek Next Generation, you have Deanna Troy, who is literally the empath who is acting as like the translator and the emotional interpreter which it sounds like in many ways, that's exactly what you were in your family. You were just not embraced. Well, and no one understood what was happening. Right. And I do think that's so funny because why Star Trek? Like that's such a, like a non, I wouldn't consider that to be like Christian or whatnot. It's very moral. It's very ethical. Um, Right. You know, and everybody has a code that they live by. Um, So I do appreciate that. But yes, I would watch Deanna Troy. Although no lie, I was struggling so much with who I was that I would watch that character and I would think she's so annoying. Mm-hmm. And so much of that is just internalized. Gosh, I mean, self-hatred, right? Like I hate to be that dramatic, but honestly, it's so much of this idea that you can't possibly be who you are. So when you see a representation of who you are, you think, oh, that's terrible. I can't bear to look. Mm. Right? And I related on that show. I was like, I want to be like Data. He has no feelings. 
right? Wow. And oh my gosh, I feel like this is turning into a Star Trek nerd out, but like I just looked at data and I thought that's who I have to be. That's my goal. So that's what I wanted to be was a person that did not have feelings because it would help me understand the world a little better if I could just ignore that part of myself and others. Oh, oh. Well, and the irony is that, you know, to continue down the Star Trek nerd rabbit hole. Love it. Data wanted to be human. Data wanted to have feelings. Data wanted to understand humanity. I mean, some of the funniest episodes are where Data is attempting to have a sense of humor. And um, which I come from a a fan. My mom has no sense of humor whatsoever. And so I joke (laughs) that I have a... I have like a humor mechanism that works half the time and the other half the time. It's like, oh, a joke. Funny. Ha, 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 ha. And, you know, it's, but but just like watching those episodes with Data where he's attempting to have a sense of humor and he just does not understand like humor and emotion. But I want to go back to the fact that you are in this environment and I just want to say 100% like 150% I relate. I totally hear you. And and for me as a kid, it did not compute. I was so confused by the way that people functioned in the world because so often I was used to speaking the truth and I was used to seeing the truth and like like rec- like like what you saw was what you got with me. And I was baffled by all of these people that were basically faking it constantly. Like fake, fakeness did not make any sense to me either. It was the most bizarre thing. And I am, you know, I've had enough conversations with enough empaths and, and, you know, however you want to identify yourself, but people who I would call empaths in that we pick up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations from the world around us. And often we feel them as if they are our own, like we experience it as like getting flooded with those feelings. What I've noticed is that when we are growing up in or in in an environment where people are not acknowledging the truth, then instead of validating it and saying, oh, wow, you're picking these things up, what they do is they say, that's not real. That's not really (laughs) happening. This does not exist. This does not exist. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Move along, folks. Nothing to see here. And it leaves us completely like it leaves us in this state of total confusion because we know that we're picking something up, but we're also being told repeatedly, you're crazy. You're overreacting. You're too sensitive. You're taking it too personally. So You know, before we jumped on the show, you were like, is it okay to talk about this? And I was like, no, please talk about this. Because I think that in my travels, a lot of people who struggle with empathic sensitivity don't necessarily identify as empaths because of all the gaslighting that they experienced at such an early age. And I love, I just want to hold out to the piece where you were saying about you hated Deanna Troy because she, she, like, like because of that, you know, it was like, it was so hard to see her embrace who she was when you could not embrace who you were. And I think for so many women, if, you know, like our judgment about our bodies, like Mm. how often do you watch a woman on television and go, oh my God, she's too thin. Oh my God, she's too fat. Oh my God, look at those eyebrows. Oh my God, look at her hair. 
And, you know, just so much judgment that I think we have against ourselves that we then project onto other people who are embracing themselves. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. agree with that. I will also say when I spoke truth and still to this day, I will say things and people in the room will laugh and I will literally say, I don't know why you're laughing. Mm-hmm. I'm not joking. This is factual. Like I'm simply stating, I'm simply speaking what to me seems obvious and true and important, but it's so uncomfortable for so many people that they pull away from it through laughter. And it took me a really long time to understand that that's what was happening, that their laughter was a reflection of their discomfort and not laughing at me, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of makes sense that I, that they weren't judging me necessarily. And in fact, sadly, they were turning around and, and judging themselves, which I think is what you're talking about when we, and it doesn't even have to be a woman on TV, right? It can be like just a woman that you see at the store or, right, or I mean, anywhere in your life. And instead of saying, good for you, being comfortable in your body, being comfortable in who you are, we say, oh, we have to pick it apart because it's so hard to see somebody embracing their authentic self, which when I boil it down and people want to know like, what's my mission? My mission is honestly just to help people, all people, particularly women, but all people embrace their authentic self and just be more of that. Mm. Get rid of all that Mm. other stuff and embrace and hold on to their authentic self. And I mean, that's sort of where my, my, my podcast evolved into from this physical health, but you are spot on with the way we, we judge others in an attempt to turn our, turn that mirror away from ourselves. Turning the mirror away from ourselves. Absolutely. Well, and also sort of keeping ourselves in our own prison. Mm. You know, it's like, if we're seeing somebody who's living the life that we would actually like to live, but then we judge them, we can keep ourselves sort of imprisoned in kind of the social constructs that we're trying so desperately to adhere to. I want to go back to, I mean, you grew up in a fundamentalist evangelical conservative household. And yet now here you are a chakra coach and (laughs) obviously in a very, very different world. But how did you go from being the child that is picking up all of the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations, the stuff that is going on in the world around you, and then being told this is not real. This is not a thing. You are, you are, you know, you're being too serious. You're being too sensitive. How did you go from that? Mm. Like, how did you break, like, like, how did you break out? (laughs) Like, like, what was the journey? Like, I can't imagine, there must have been something like for you to break away from, from being raised as an evangelical, like that's a huge, huge thing there. Yes. It, I always tell people it was the worst two years of my life because it was a dismantling of everything that I thought I held dear. I really believed that these were the beliefs that were at my core. Uh, and I believe that I had generated these beliefs when in fact, they'd been put on me. Can we talk about what those beliefs actually were? Like just for some examples of like, what were you taught? What were you believing? Because I think I'm sure there are people who are listening who could probably relate. Absolutely. Uh, I think some of the the big ones, and this is not necessarily a reflection of Christianity itself. I always, you know, it's, it's a sect, right? Like what I experienced was just a small group of what 
the broad religion is. So I would in no way ever encourage anybody to abandon their religion if it's helping them, if it's mm-hmm, serving mm-hmm. them. Um, and I always like to say that because I think people are like, oh, you hate religion. And I was like, yeah, Mm-mm. that's not true at all. Don't hate it at all. Um, but one of the primary things that, oh gosh, now they're all flooding it. But I would say one of the big ones was that as a human being, you are fundamentally wrong. Mm. And that's so phenomenally damaging to everyone that grows up in that environment. There is something fundamentally wrong with you because humans are bad, right? And so, and I will still feel those thoughts creeping up. I have to make a diligent effort to process them, right? I used to try to push them away. Now I'm getting older and I have a better sense of that. Now I'm like working through them a little bit. But that's one of the big beliefs. That's how you huge. It is like you are bad. (laughs) Well, and within that, you know, one of the things that I've seen is that the insidiousness of this idea that we're fundamentally wrong or fundamentally flawed is that when we start going into healing, we are constantly looking at ourselves as broken and needing to be fixed. And we, and so we approach even like the paradigm shift from the old paradigm of like needing to work at it, needing to fix it, needing to lean into, you know, but, but, and looking constantly for like repairing the broken thing as opposed to starting from a place of I'm really okay, exactly as I am. Correct. And I, it took a, well, is it, is it finished? Isn't the process finished? I don't know, but basically. I, I'm not sure belief- it's ever finished until you're dead. And then you, and then in my world, you, you spend a little bit of time recouping and then you go back out and you start learning again. And maybe yeah. you get another chance until yeah. you're completely finished, which millions and millions of lifetimes, as they say. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I think of the like the fundamentally wrong philosophy as like if it, we think of it as just like blankets or coverings or like the the clothing that our authentic self wears. And so it's a lot of getting rid of like the layers that have been put on you and that's super It actually strikes when me as oxygen. Yeah. When you like it actually feels more like it's the air we breathe that it it's like it becomes infused even in our cells. Yeah, it's it's very it is very insidious. That's the perfect word. Um, The second (laughs) the second thing that really struck me was that there was a God who had pre-selected also God is male, which I never felt good about, but a a God who had pre-selected who would get to be like who were the, the the chosen few people that would get to go live in heaven mm. right life mm-hmm. was a one and done and it actually didn't matter because you'd been pre-selected and i was like i just like logically it that made no sense to me because i was also then like so then why are we out there trying to convert people if it's if it's already said and done like why am i trying to like make them believe what i believe if God's already been like, sorry, dude, not you. Uh, (laughs) It made no sense logically, but it rained that I just, I was like, and then you live in fear. Oh my God. Am I chosen? And they would say, well, there's no way to know until you, you know, die and go to heaven or you don't. It's like, then what? I don't understand. But so, and then I'm supposed to behave on 
earth and do things in a certain way, but it doesn't matter because I've it was baffling, right? Wow. Explain to you that talk about you know there's it's interesting in terms of something I heard a long time ago that this reminds me of. So my mom was a healer, a psychotherapist, and she ended up doing quite a bit of work with people who were like um, like cult and ritual abuse survivors and. One of the things that that sort of like brain, like I don't know, like organizations that tend to brainwash do is they create these conundrums. They create these paradoxes within our brain because a paradox will, um, and and the reason I'm I mentioned my mom is because this was a conversation she and I originally had, and I think it was her who shared this thing of like like implanting hypnotic suggestions that basically work as open-ended tape loops that kind of keep, like you keep on hitting the return bar, trying to get Mm. an answer. And so one of the things she said was, you know, like sort of a saying of, I will never, you can never remember, you can never forget. And this sort of like idea of like, you can never remember, you can never forget. And like that they could, that instead of them canceling each other out, it creates this kind of like, circuitry fritz that where you're running it's like a computer virus that goes into the system and is running and it strikes me that this idea of god has preordained whether you're going to go to heaven or not but you better be good <laughs> like like it it's sort of like it does not compute but at the same time because it does not compute it kind of keeps you engaging with it well and i'll go back to the empath thing of course because the good was then a mask that you wore, right? right? And so you were you were acting good instead of acknowledging that you're human and have these non-good or bad emotions or thoughts. Sins. Sins. You're, sin. so you're, you're a sinner. Right. Yeah. And so seeing and feeling the the undercurrent of the sinner nature being masked with this good, it was like, it, it was very difficult to... Um, reconcile those two. So yeah, I did. That's a great idea. Like, yes, I was living in a paradox. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's one of the other beliefs. And the third one I would say, and I have a friend who had a similar upbringing and we always laugh about it because we are taught you are absolutely last in the world. You are last. And they would say, this is how you find joy, Jesus, others, yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's fine. I'm, I, you know, I think it's important to take care of each other and, you know, and if, if Jesus speaks to you, great, but it wasn't just that you cared for others. It was, you cared for others at the expense of yourself. And then the idea was that you would be rewarded later. And then I always thought, well, then if that's the case, how come other people aren't putting me first? Right. And this is also only for women. Women, only women had to do it this way. Men could do yes. it a different way if they wanted yes. to. Yes. <laughs> they, could, yes. they could do like Jesus, me, whoever else. Right. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that was just really very awkward because, you know, why did I have to wait for the reward in life? Why would I meet other people's needs to wait f- and wait for a reward when they weren't doing the same? But yet we were all. Yeah. So that idea of putting yourself last. And I know we talk about self-care in like the the healing community a lot and then the light worker or however you want to identify. But it's self-care is so much more than taking a bubble bath. Yes. It's so much deeper than that. Yes. So those are, I would say the three strongest beliefs that I spent some 
really rough years working through. Yeah. Well, and I'm also really hearing that with all of them, there were logic holes in them that even though you kind of were brainwashed into believing that you're fundamentally wrong, that, you know, God has pre-selected who's going to get to go to heaven and that you are, you know, and to put yourself last, I'm hearing like in, as you're describing it, that there was a part of you even then that was like, huh, this does not compute. Like that you were seeing the hypocrisy in it. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I always joke that my parents should not have let me watch Star Trek to watch data be so logical all the time, because it really made me start thinking about what I was observing in the world logically in the sort of the way that he did. And that might be the silliest thing you've ever heard, but there's a definite sort of, well, if A is true and B is true, but C is not true, you know, how does A plus B equal C? That doesn't make any sense, right? Like it was just all of a sudden the logic didn't didn't follow through. When you took something to its next step, all of a sudden it started to fall apart. And, right. they, and that was the whole thing. Don't ask questions because the second you ask a question, it starts, it all starts to crumble underneath you. And that's what it felt like for those two years was that everything was crumbling underneath me. Right. What but, precipitated that two-year period? Like, was there a last straw? Was there like what made you go, no? enough. I'm not going to, I'm not going to become somebody's bride and mother and like follow down this. I'm not going to become a good Christian wife because pretty much that would be the only option you would have had. Right. Well, hilariously, I did become somebody's bride and mother very young, but not because, well, kind of because I felt pressured into it, but that's neither here nor there. I did um, go to college away from my family, although there were very strict rules about where I could go to college, not as strict as some people have, but very strict rules about where I could go. Uh, And then, but just getting out of that environment and not having that put in my ear every single day. uh, My other thing that I really credit to sparking it was leaving the place I grew up. I went 3000 miles away to go Mm. to college. Because I knew in my soul that there had to be something that wasn't this. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. And I get asked all the time, oh, why would you ever leave there? I mean, it's perfect. And it's true. It's beautiful. It's Southern California. Like, who leaves Southern California? I was like, well, I got to get out because I feel like there has to be something else. So did you come, so 3,000 miles away, did you come, did you go to Hawaii or did you come to the East Coast? (laughs) I went to the East Coast. I went to the East Coast. where I met my husband and et cetera. After we graduated from college, he joined the army. And I think this is sort of where it really all started to fall apart. We got stationed in Germany, Mm. which could not have been any farther from my upbringing. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was extremely lonely because I didn't know anyone. And I was a young mother and a young bride and very, very confused. And Without any mooring, without a family or, you know, even a a church community, as damaging as that was, I didn't really have one. Yeah. Um, I had no mooring and I just started to create one myself. And Mm. part of that is literally just every day asking yourself about your own thoughts. Is that true? Is that true? How do I know it's true? What if it's not true? And it's a scary place to live is in that 
sense that at any moment you could just tumble into an abyss of not knowing because if what you believe isn't true, what is true? And so it was, it was a miserable time. It was a mm. miserable time just it, to live in my body, to live out of my body. You know, it put, it put our marriage on the rocks because, and now we joke because we're, we're still married. We'll still, we'll still here. Um, he's like, you are not at all the person I married. And I'm like, thank goodness. <laughs> Cause she was a mess. So, but that was the process, right? There was sort of the spark of getting out of the environment. So in that way, I was lucky, I think, but also just the process of having a thought, you know, only the chosen go to heaven. Well, is that true? Mm. How could anybody possibly know that? Like, where's the logic in that? We don't, how could we possibly know that? And I understand there's a certain amount of faith that goes into all religions. That's why they're religions and not science, right? Because we can't know things. Right. But in the yogic tradition, one of the things that that defines truth is that it's in your experience, right? It matches your experience. And I did not know that was the yogic tradition because it would be several years before I really sort of got into yoga. But I guess I got introduced to that sort of gem at a yoga class in the local fitness center there in Germany. If it doesn't ring true with your experience, really look at whether that's true. Really look mm-hmm. at that. If it so, doesn't ring true with your experience, really look if that is true. That's right. And then that's that's one of the three definitions or the three markers of truth that they ask you to look at in yoga, right? So Does let's it, talk about what are those? What a perfect counterbalance to we're fundamentally wrong. <laughs> God has pre-selected whether you're going to go to heaven or not and put yourself last. What are yeah, the three? So the first truths? one is that it's in the tradition, right? And the idea there is to respect what's come before you. Not just you can't know everything, but that you don't have to constantly be reinventing the wheel. You don't have to learn everything. There's an enti- there's thousands of generations of people who have done some of this work. So is this belief in the tradition? And here's the thing, in that yogic tradition, the fact that you are fundamentally wrong is not in the tradition. It's not in the tradition. And so to also realizing that other people didn't wander about their lives thinking, well, I'm bad and horrible and I deserve everything miserable in life. Like realizing that other people weren't living their lives like that was mind blowing. So I will say like, that was a big thing. Um, Yeah, my husband did not believe that about himself. He had a much more moderate faith upbringing. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, I don't believe I'm the ultimate sin. Wait, what? So that was helpful. But um, so in the tradition. And then the second one is, is it in your lived experience? Right. And this is we talk about this a lot in current social justice work is respecting people's lived experience. And understanding that you don't have it, you don't have their lived experience, they don't have yours. Like, so we really just look at that. You know, does it reflect your lived experience? And then um, in your in the teaching that you're working with, because yoga is or some yoga is a very lineage based process, right? Does your current teacher like agree? Because sometimes our lived experience, like my first 20 some odd years of lived experience was not truthful right? That was my lived experience and it wasn't truthful. So you look at the tradition, you look at your lived experience, and then you try to get it confirmed by a teacher that you trust and respect, right? So there's like checks and balances to truth. 
So Sarah, so, you know, we've got on one side of the fence, we've got the fundamentalist beliefs of like, we're fundamentally flawed. God has preordained whether we're going to go to heaven and put ourselves last versus the yogic tradition, which kind of holds the space for, you know, the whole of the tradition and that the wisdom, even if you don't know it yourself, that the wisdom contains, that there's wisdom contained within the tradition and that it's the tradition itself is sort of greater than you. Is that a good way of summarizing the first truth? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. And then the second truth is that everybody's lived experience is different and that what we have is our own lived experience. And that's what we can decide if this rings true for us, if this is valid for us. And then third, depending on whether or not you're in a yogic tradition that follows lineage, how does your teacher regard things and does, you know, does something ring true for them? And I'm also imagining that from that also there's find the teacher who fits Mm -hmm. for you. Yes. I mean, I struggle some with yoga lineage because it does tend to be very patriarchal, uh, which I have now spent most of my life sort of running up against and trying to fight. So I don't necessarily think it has to be some sort of guru, Mm -hmm. but you can find a teacher that is helpful and useful. And, you know, and a lot of times we're cobbling together different teachings from different people. And I do think there's a certain amount of purist streaks in the yoga community where you must follow a particular lineage. And I think everybody kind of has to look at that history and figure that out for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say any one way of doing it is, is wrong. Right. And it's important to just be respectful of all the traditions. Well, and there is a whole other conversation that is a rabbit hole that I'm just going to acknowledge, but not jump down, which is the relationship between white, white people and yoga and cultural appropriation. hundred percent. And it's, and I mean, that really is like an entire episode. That's, that's an entire season. <laughs> I mean, a yeah, cultural, absolutely. You know, and, and what is the difference between honoring a tradition, loving a tradition, having a passion for a tradition that is not our own and culturally appropriating something. And, and that's something that I still sit with to this day of like, what am I allowed to love versus when is my, like, like, where's the line between loving something and appropriating something? But yeah, it is. It's a big rabbit hole. I think the primary thing to think about for me, at least is the power dynamic. Am I trying to exert power over this tradition uh, and use it for my own gain? Or am I loving the tradition and being a part of it without trying to own it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and recreate it, redefine it, reform it, become a celebrity yoga teacher. That's right. With, yeah, not with, trying to you know, recreate something in an image in my way that works for me, because then that doesn't make us any better than anyone else. Right. We're starting to. So I think it's about power. I think it's yeah. about power and mm-hmm. sort of figuring out where you fall in that in the, in your use of a tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sort of imagining it's kind of the interface between power and profit as well. And, and certainly I'm not saying there's anything wrong with making a profit in terms of doing work and being, you know, prosperous from the work that we do, but there's sort of an interesting dance when power and profit start getting intersected that, that turns it into something slightly different. But so, so you're in Germany, you are in this situation where 
you are isolated. You are probably, I don't imagine like you're, you're, you're super fluent in German at that point in time. (laughs) No. So you're in, you're experiencing this language barrier. And even though you're married to somebody, thank God, who was not raised in the same tradition you were, you don't necessarily have the same common language. Like, like even he does not like you're in, like, as you said, you had no mooring. And so you happened into yoga, like you sort of landed in this yoga class. Would you say that that like landing in yoga was kind of like the beginning of this entirely new, like this pivot for you and this entirely new chapter in your life? No, I hated yoga and thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever done in my life. I I love that. (laughs) I love that. It was so lame. Oh, I know. I thought it was just awful. Um, I took the class and I enjoyed the class, but I was like, what is happening? Like, this isn't a real workout. And now I laugh. I'm like, it's not a workout. It's a work in. But I didn't know. I was a kid. I look back now. I'm like, oh, I was so young. But I just genuinely didn't like it. I took this class with this one woman who I really liked and learned quite a bit from her. Uh, But then after she moved away, I just never practiced again for a decade and a half. However, We always think of yoga as being a posture practice, a physical practice, an asana practice. And this is so interesting to me. I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. It will once again surprise you to learn. And my dad, of all people, accidentally taught me to meditate. He taught me. Accidentally taught you to meditate. That's right. I always, I love, it was an accident. He didn't know what he was teaching me, but it's because I had all this anxiety and couldn't sleep. He did the best he could, which looking back was amazing. And he taught me like a basic progressive relaxation exercise. Mm. So starting when I was six, seven, eight years old, very young, I'd been doing this as a, like a method of self soothing. And so it turned into a meditation practice that I then just did every day, not even realizing that it was meditation, concentration, focusing on my breath, allowing thoughts to sort of float by like clouds or sailing ships or leaves on a river, however you want to picture it. I had no idea that's what I was doing, but I've been doing that forever. Mm -hmm. So I laugh because I think I've been a a daily meditator for almost 40 years now before I had the word to describe what I was doing. So even though I did not enjoy asana, did not enjoy the physical yoga practice, I was practicing a form of what I now know to be yoga. Mm -hmm. So going to that class wasn't necessarily the turning point, but it started just adding to, um, you know how, when you read a really good book or you read a, uh, or you watch a really good movie and you get to the end and all of a sudden these 15 things that seemed so random and disconnected all come together, all come together, beautiful ending. That's how I felt about coming to the, you know, being a chakra coach, moving into the mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness space was that I had all of these tiny little bits of my life that somehow at the very end, the author, the universe, the cosmos pulled them all together and presented me with this. I've been trying to tell you for 30 years and I was floored, absolutely floored. Now I'm a big um, asana practitioner. I go to yoga class. I do have a home practice, et cetera, but I did not come to yoga, the philosophy, not even come to chakras through a physical practice, which is kind of flip from, I think the way most Westerners find yoga. So 
No. When I took that yoga class, I thought it was ridiculous. (laughs) I love that. I love that, that you thought it was ridiculous. And so what, like, how did you, so, so you went through this two year period of just everything unraveling for you. There was the base or the anchor of yoga. And there was this sort of through line of, of your sensitivity in a weird way. It's like, Mm -hmm. it just sounds like there were these jewels, like your dad gave you meditation and relaxation techniques at a very early age. The only TV that you were allowed to watch was Star Trek, which if you're going to let a child watch any TV, honestly, I think Star Trek is one of the best things because it's, I mean, it really does have a moral compass and the, every single episode is really about like, can't we all get along? And I, you know, it was talking about inclusivity. I mean, I think it had like Nichelle, Nichelle Williams. Is that, you know, the first Lieutenant of like one of the very first like syndicate, like black actresses, but like, especially like in a lead role in a series, like um, Sulu, like, like this, they were like Roddenberry and Star, Star Wars, Star Trek, <laughs> such a difference between Star Wars, but Roddenberry was doing things that were so like remarkable. And so it's like, I love the fact that your dad almost sounds like there was like this, like the Holy Spirit for, you know, for using your dad's language, the Holy Spirit was like completely directing your father to do the things that were going to allow you to become who you are. And he didn't necessarily even know what he was doing, but that there were just these like little breadcrumbs along the way. So we're two years, you know, so let's just fast forward to that. You know, you've been dismantling everything. You've been decolonizing yourself from fundamentalism and from all of these beliefs. And you're in this other country where everything is just completely different. How did you go from like, just like molten lava of like, I know nothing to following, like to stepping onto your path? Like what, what was the next part? Like what happened next for you? I got involved, very involved in physical fitness. Um, That's where my training as a, I, I became a personal trainer, group fitness instructor, did some um, nutrition certifications and things like that. I got very involved in physical wellness and I took on clients and I was helping people. And I really felt very good about the work that I was doing. And I still feel very good about the work that I was doing. What I realized though, after many years in was that the component of wellness that we were not addressing at any level was the emotional, the mental, and then the spiritual aspect of our wellness. And I don't say spiritual, I think, you know, meaning like God or anything like that, just part of us that embedded in so many of us knows, knows that we are part of something larger. And we don't talk about that. And we weren't addressing that in our physical wellness practices. And so that was my next step was realizing that. And to bring it back around to, you know, being an empath or highly sensitive, One of the reasons I was such a good personal trainer, one of the reasons that I am such a good instructor is that when people come to me, and I'm still so uncomfortable with all of these words, so forgive me if I stumble, but I would sense sort of what the core problem was and what we really needed to be talking about. And I was almost never weight loss or toned muscles. It just wasn't that. It just wasn't ever that. And 
we had to spend our time, you know, and I always joke, nobody was paying me to coach their chakras. Nobody was paying me for that. Nobody was interested in that. So I would like have to sneak it in, right? To address those aspects. And part of it for me was kind of knowing the words, being able to articulate their their core insecurities in a way that felt comforting and good and supportive without dismantling them, right? They don't need me to say, well, that's right. You definitely do need to lose weight because the fact was they didn't. They thought losing weight, they thought getting fit would make them feel one way, but that wasn't going to stick. That wasn't going to last. It might for a moment make them feel a certain way. But what we really needed to be talking about was this emotional and mental and spiritual state. And the part of me that you would describe as an empath had that gift of being able to find that quickly, right? I didn't need, you know, weeks and months. I could find it pretty quickly because people coming into the gym are very vulnerable a lot of times. And that skill, that trait of mine allowed me to just sort of wrap them up in a little fitness hug and and allow all the parts of them to grow along with taking care of what I now think of as like kind of just the casing for your soul, right? Yeah, I definitely think we should take care of our bodies. I 100% think we should care for our bodies, but not at the expense of our emotional wellness, not at the expense of our mental health, and certainly not at the expense of disconnecting ourselves from spirit. So Sarah, one of the things that you just said that actually just really rocked my world is that people come to the gym in a really vulnerable state. I don't think I have ever heard anybody say that, honestly, ever. And the thing that I'm really struck by about that statement, I mean, for one thing, is just your your empathy, your awareness, your kindness. But also I just think about like my sense of like so often the idea of the gym is this idea of, you know, hard bodies and suck it up buttercup and push yourself harder and push yourself further. And I love that you're recognizing that people are entering into this space vulnerable. Like, wow. It's so true. And realizing that as essentially a first or, you know, just a first year personal trainer was life-changing for me. Yeah. And because I remembered so clearly, I was not an athletic child. I did not Mm -mm. go to the gym. I remember, Mm -mm. I still remember vividly just looking at the building and getting like sweaty and nervous because I just, the judgment that could potentially come from that space was palpable, right? Mm -hmm. Physical Mm -hmm. in my body. And, you know, so I wanted to be a person who could help people take that, you know, one baby step. I'm in the building. Next baby step. Talk to me. Next baby step. Right. And acknowledging that people, most people come to the gym, especially the people that I was seeing. Most people came to the the gym hurting. They didn't come Mm -hmm. in feeling great about themselves. They came in hurting. And I think it was, you know, this, uh, this sense of what what their thoughts were, what their emotions were, what the energy was and being cognizant of that in way maybe other personal trainers aren't, right? And maybe Uh, that has the empathic abilities, abilities, I don't know. Again, you hear me struggle. (laughs) But yeah. Well, and and 
you know, you and I, before we jumped on, you were talking about how, you know, the moniker or the, or the tag of empath, I mean, for one thing, it's just become such a buzzword, but that it was not necessarily something that you felt like inclined to embrace, you know, I am an empath. And, you know, something that, that I've, I've had some conversation. It's not a badge of honor. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not something we necessarily want to be wearing with pride. I mean, in the same way that like somebody who's like an alcoholic and standing in the bar drinking their like fifth gin and tonic and going, I'm an alcoholic. It's sort of like um, being an empath is a challenging thing. And, and yet um, I, and sometimes I think people who say I'm an empath don't necessarily like, what do you mean by that? Um, You know, and part of, my mission is to see if we can get some solid, like, I don't know, like, like have some common language about it, come to a place of agreement about what this actually means. Um, and also help the people who do struggle with, you know, picking up what's really going on when something, when everybody else is saying something different to basically saying, yeah, that's what being an empath tends to be like. But, you know, I just really appreciate you acknowledging the the reticence and sort of the the kind of like the the, the like yeah not so sure about these words or this language i will say that in my experience i think that um we underestimate how different we are from other people and that i think we do sometimes really underestimate that we see things that other people cannot see that we can le- read the label from the outside you know that we're seeing things that other people are not able to see about themselves, but also, you know, other people can't see about other people. And that, 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 and that really, because, you know, having it just your compassion and your awareness of the vulnerability that people are coming in with into the fitness center is it like, there's so much empathy in that. And I do not hear that. I mean, not that I'm like massively involved in the fitness world, but I mean, no, I it is missing. About, it's missing. I mean, I think about like, you know, in, as somebody in the sort of health, wellness, alternative healing, energy healing, emotional health, um, spiritual development realm, you know, myself and looking for podcasts, I will just say when I see the hard body hustle health and wellness podcast where there are a lot of them. I will just sort of be like, you know, the bro dude podcasts of yeah. like, you know, I'm just like, yeah, no, not mm-hmm. for me, not where I want to go. Like, I do not want something that should be about how do we embody ourselves? How do we love ourselves more? Be yet another like, like flog that we whip yes. the crap out of ourselves with. And that is exactly why I started the Your Chakra Coach podcast when I was focused on essentially the first year, primarily on physical health because I wanted people to love themselves. I always said, you can't love, you can't hate yourself into change. You must love yourself. Mm, there. And I Sarah, you can't create- hate yourself into change. You have to love yourself. Like love right yourself. there, that's a t-shirt. You know, <laughs> that's definitely a meme for this podcast. You can't hate yourself into change. You can, you know, you have to love yourself into change. Yeah. And so that's, that was my whole goal in starting that was to have a place where I could share what I'd learned in the wellness space, in the physical fitness space, that actually was the emotional and mental and spiritual wellness space. Because I I genuinely believe they're not really separable. I think they must go together. Mm-hmm. And when we try to pull them apart, which is a very Western approach to life, um, and I appreciate that, that, you know, we're we're very much like, let's take it apart and f- figure out the individual things. And then hopefully it'll all stick back together, right? That doesn't necessarily work. My, my, 
my purpose was to put that out in the world, right? Let's love ourselves. Let's love ourselves towards health. Let's take care of our bodies because we're worth taking care of. Not because we have to meet some sort of stupid standard set by somebody else that we don't even care about. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Sarah, I cannot believe how fast the time has gone by in this conversation. And it's, it's very clear to me that we could have another conversation because I feel like today we talked about your story. We talked about your experience as a kid and essentially like, just like the journey of dismantling and re-questioning and coming to, you know, like real, really redefining yourself. Um, but we haven't necessarily talked a lot about chakras or about, you know, we just barely started to talk about health and fitness. I would love to bring you back for another conversation. That would be delightful. Yay. So you guys plan for part two of this sometime, hopefully in the not terribly distant future, as Sarah and I go into like, let's talk about chakras. Let's talk about, you know, instead of looking at the physical body, let's talk about the emotional and spiritual body and just the whole journey into loving ourselves better and, and becoming more of who we are here to be. So Sarah, one of the questions I love to ask people before I end any podcast, and and we'll also have the, how do we reach out to you? But before we do that, I want to ask you the question, if you could go back as the wise Sarah that you are now, and you could speak to the really struggling Sarah, and I'm thinking probably like like smack dab in the middle of the darkest night of your soul, that two-year period in Germany where everything is unraveling and falling apart. What would you tell her? What did she need to hear? Like what if if we have a time machine and we're actually like we're between time and space and we are, you know, and and I there's magic in podcasts. It's like we're broadcasting this message back to her. It's gonna get to her. Yeah. What what transmission does she really need right now? Everything is going to be okay, but not because the external world is okay, but because you at your center are okay. And everything will come from that. When you can trust that you yourself are okay, then it doesn't matter what's happening externally. And I and I do think somewhere that message did get to me, maybe from this podcast. Maybe that message came back in time to me from this podcast because that's the only thing that's self-trust. That's the only thing that sort of got me through that moment. I can, I, I actually can feel the fabric of time folding and not folding over on itself and this point and that point touching. And I actually do believe that we have just sent that message back. And well, good, because she needs it back. She needed it. I've had this experience. There have been a couple moments in my own life where I can feel like where I sent a transmission back to myself. And it was the thing that I desperately needed. And so actually, I would actually even invite you, if you're listening to this podcast right now, and you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, that we ask this question or a variation of it every time, but what do you need to broadcast back to yourself? What message do you need to send back? Because I think we all have places where we really needed, like, we just needed that encouragement. So you guys, I'll give you an assignment. Think of what you need to tell yourself and send it back in time to that part of you that needs to know it. Sarah, this conversation has been so rich, has just been so delicious. I really could keep just talking to you for hours. I feel the same way. It's just been so lovely. So lovely. And we both have lives. (laughs) Is there anything else that that you're like, I really want to be sure that this piece of information gets out there? 
I think just kind of what we've been saying, trust yourself, trust find yourself. that seed of your authentic self, hold on to it because it's don't let it get covered up. Or if it does get covered up, spend some time uncovering it. Like mm-hmm. that little seed of you is the most important thing. The universe needs it. The universe needs that seed. Mm, mm, mm. So final question, how do people get in touch with you? Well, there's a couple ways, of course. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, Your Chakra Coach. Uh, I also have a podcast, which we may have mentioned once or twice. We <laughs> might have mentioned it. We, we might have even it. talked about the fact that I was on your podcast. <laughs> you were on my podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's Your Chakra Coach. So if people are interested sort of in learning more about what we've touched on today, that's a great place to start. The episodes are short, really just 15 to 20 minutes. And then I do have a website, yourchakracoach.com. You can reach out to me there. And I do, I try to get back to every single person that reaches out because it's really important to me that we um, get this message out into our community, our society, our world. And I also like to know that other people are out there living all of these things that we are. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sarah. And you guys, if you're listening to this and you're away from the computer or, you know, you're, you just, you can't write it down. All of this information will be in the show notes so you can find Sarah. And also, you know, you'll find me tagging her in my social and all of those other things. So you should, it will be easy, easy, easy to find Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for just sharing your truth and your light and your story with us. This has just been so good. Well, thank you for having me, Jen. I have really enjoyed getting to know you. Mm, Right back at you, sweetie. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time, hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your Empathic Safety Guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.